This is episode number 392 with Rhea Dempsey. Welcome to the Melissa Ambrosini Show. I'm your host, Melissa, best-selling author of Mastering Your Mean Girl and Open Wide. And I'm here to remind you that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word. Each week, I'll be getting up close and personal with thought leaders from around the globe, as well as your weekly dose of motivation so that you can create epic change in your own life and become the best version of yourself possible. Are you ready, beautiful? I'm super excited to tell you about one of today's podcast sponsors, Juve. Now, I first got a Juve so many years ago, and Nick and I love it. Basically, it's red light therapy that enhances recovery, improves your skin health, mental acuity, sleep, blood circulation, and reduces inflammation. The science is out, and it is awesome. I think it's pretty amazing how red light can stimulate the cells in your body to produce more energy, which gives your body the fuel it needs to function properly. I personally feel so much energy, my skin is way more plump, and I'm a lot less sore when I use it. Check out episode 389 that I did with Melissa, the founder of Juve, for more information. And the awesome news is, They have just launched a new, super affordable and battery powered Juve Go that you can take with you anywhere, which is awesome if you travel a lot. It fits in the palm of your hand and is just as powerful as the larger devices, making spot treatments easy and effective. For a limited time, Juve wants to hook you up with an exclusive discount on your first order. Just go to juve.com forward slash Melissa and apply the code Melissa to your order. That's J-O-O-V-V dot com forward slash Melissa. Before we dive into today's episode, I'd love to share a podcast recommendation with you. Hosted by Ella and Matthew Mills, the founders of Deliciously Ella, And it's called Delicious Ways to Feel Better. And it's a brilliant podcast with informative, honest conversations around mental and physical health from leading experts. From gut health to anxiety, imposter syndrome to body image, Delicious Ways to Feel Better is helping us all cope through the uncertainties of life. And it's available wherever you listen to podcasts. So go and check it out. Rhea is a highly sought-after childbirth educator, counsellor, speaker, author, and birth attendant with experience at over 1,000 births. She's respected globally as an insightful thinker and presenter on the topic of working with pain, both physical and psychological, in childbirth and the implications of this for normal psychological birth and postnatal well-being. Rhea's first book, Birth with Confidence, Savvy Choices for Normal Birth, a bestseller published in 2013, has become a word-of-mouth classic. With three adult daughters and, so far, five grandchildren of her own, Rhea's understanding of birth has been gained from her own birth experiences and during 40 years working with pregnant women, their partners, support people, midwives, and medical practitioners. 
And in this very important episode, we chat about her terrible experience having her first baby in the 70s and how it inspired her to become a birth advocate, the five crucial topics that every pregnant woman needs to get informed about prior to giving birth, why birthing women are not poor little things and how epidurals are the Trojan horses of childbirth, how to successfully work with labor pain, not against it, and how to get over the confidence crisis like a champion. We also talk about whether your partner should participate in your birth. And this is really important. And we share the science about what having your partner in the room does, how to empower partners to successfully support a birthing woman. She also shares life-saving breathing strategies to practice during the last trimester of your pregnancy, how to connect with the beautiful primal woman within you, healing women's relationship with psychological childbirth in today's culture, plus so much more. And for everything that we mentioned in today's episode, you can check out in the show notes. And that's over at melissaambrosini.com forward slash 392. And now without further ado, let's bring on the incredible Rhea Dempsey. Rhea, welcome to the show. I am so excited to have you here with us today. Before we dive in, can you tell us what you had for breakfast this morning? Ah, good. So I had muesli with lots of macadamia nuts actually from up your way and berries on top and soy milk and yogurt and banana and some juice, some orange juice, I think it was this morning. That's what I had for breakfast. Oh, lovely. Haven't yet had my morning. I have a cup of tea about 11 o'clock. So I should rightfully be having it now, but I'm just having a little bit of herb tea instead. Beautiful. Well, I'm so excited to have you here. And I want to just give you a little bit of a background. I actually only discovered your work recently because I'm pregnant with my first child, which is so exciting. Yes. And I actually came across you on Instagram and got your books and devoured it and thought it was incredible and your work is incredible. And I thought, I've got to have her on my podcast. I've got to interview you because the work that you're doing is so important. So before we dive into that, can you tell us a little bit about how you got here? How did you get to doing this work? How did this all unfold for you? Like, did you know you were going to do this as a child or as a teenager? How did you get here? Thank you for talking to me about my work and hopefully for the listeners, it's going to be helpful as well. But to answer that question, so no, I had no idea when I was a child or a teenager or at any point actually, until I had my own first baby. And maybe just a bit of background to that. Before that point, I was a physical education teacher and an outdoor adventure facilitator and, you know, played a lot of sport and very much in my body and a strong healthy body that, that, you know, did the things that I wanted to do, I was able to do. So I had a lot of trust in my body. And so then fell pregnant, you know, when I was ready and all that happened very smoothly. Pregnancy went very smoothly. And so I was just assuming that birth being a very body process that I had it covered. And I was in England at the time. I am Australian, but my husband at that time was English. And so we had our baby, we're having a baby in London. So I went along to the local hospital, a large teaching hospital. And this was in the 70s, late 70s, 
when we talked about active, I guess active birth was spoken about. So I read one or two books around that and thought, yes, well, that fits with who I am and as I know my body and as I work with my body. So I was assuming that, okay, off we go. I was just going to say one thing, because I didn't know this, and I think it's really important to explain what is active birth, because people might be thinking, I don't know what active birthing is. What is it? Did I say active birth? I meant natural birth, actually, at that point. We're skipping where the, the 80s is active birth. Natural birth is like 70s. So natural birth was really around not using drugs, basically birthing babies, but without using. At that point, we we're coming off the tail end of using chloroform. So basically women unconscious and twilight sleep moving into, I guess, pethidine, the, the opiates were being used. So natural birth was the catch cry behind natural birth was to be awake and aware so that the mother would be awake, not drugged and aware of what was happening and aware of her baby. And that also because those drugs, of course, went through the baby, that the baby would also be awake and aware so that there was that readiness for bonding and all of that. But still at that time, we were really, even with that, we were still very much conditioned to be on beds. So I went into the hospital. They did have some classes. And I remember at one of the large classes, which was like about 100 couples, more like a lecture to explain what was happening. And I asked the question about, I'd done a bit of reading and I asked the question about whether they did routine episiotomies. And episiotomies, you probably know, and your listeners probably know, is that sort of cut to the perineum if there's a problem, one, one would think. And I asked the question if they were done routinely and was answered that, no, no, we don't do them routinely, only if really if there's a problem with the baby and that they can be very helpful. So I went in feeling quite confident that the way that my body would work and that that would work. So without telling the whole story, it wasn't how it turned out and it wasn't that episiotomies weren't routine. They were very routine as I found after my daughter was born and uh, asked the other 12 women on the ward, the big ward with just the curtains around us, which was the postnatal ward. And of the 12 of us on the ward, 10 of us had had episiotomies and the other two had had seizures. So, so I think that was standard care. So I came out of that birth. There are another few other things that happened. It stalled when I got there. I understand that much more now when we understand the hormonal stuff, but we didn't really understand that fully back then. And a lot of bullying and just really now we've got the language now around birth trauma and disempowerment and lack of autonomy and coercion in the birth space and so on. So certainly that first birth, that was how it was for me not only me, but really I came out of her birth feeling, you know, what the hell happened there? What? What? And so it, it radicalized me really, I guess, maybe because of my trust of my body. I didn't really go into a feeling of, well, I, my body's failed or something, you know, thank goodness birth is so dangerous. Thank, thank goodness they saved me and my baby. I didn't go into that. I went more or less straight away into what what was that? And became quite radicalized. And then we came back to Australia and I was lucky to be surrounded by some friends, older friends of mine who are home birth women. So I, with my second and third babies, had home births and really, well, it was my first daughter's birth that radicalized me. It was my second and third daughter's birth that cemented me in that trusting of birth and trusting bodies and a whole different way of thinking and being about birth. 
and also really during that time when I was pregnant with my second baby, before I had my own first home birth, I'd been invited by a few friends to be at their home birth to look after the toddlers, of course. And, you know, those second babies, sometimes they just don't wait on anybody and somebody just has to catch them in the moment. And so I had that just delight of unexpectedly catching two babies before my next baby. So anyway, I was, I was hooked. That was it. And haven't stopped being involved around the birth scene ever since. So that was my initiation, both into motherhood and to you know, birth politics and birth activism and birth everything. Yeah. So what do you think are the fundamental things that we need to know as women going into birth? There's two sort of prongs, I think. One is certainly women need to be attuned to their bodies and their bodies' rhythms and their power and how the process works. So in education, which is specific around birth and body and all those processes, we also, I mean, we're so privileged now because we have so much more information, particularly, you know, in Australia, Dr. Sarah Buckley has done all that beautiful work about birth hormones and also others she collaborates with around the world. So we all understand that much more. So understanding that education, as I say, about what happens internally, what's happening in your body and all of those things. Also, some reckoning for the woman from the point of view of, well, how is she in her body and how is she in terms of how she will flow with that and so on, or how much space, I mean, obviously the baby is taking space and needing space, but how much space in her life can she take for you know, getting on board with that information and so on. So there's that. Then there's also I'm going to come back to the woman in a moment, but there's also a, I think a lot of education that's required about what is happening in the birth scene. Just like for me, way back then, I felt like if I had known what was happening in the birth scene, I would have tried to make different choices because I can see that that was the part that wasn't working well. So they need to understand what's happening in the birth scene, the birth culture, and then they also have to reflect for themselves on, well, what, what type of birth do they want? Do they want to have a birth where they're really engaging, engaging themselves, working with their body, working with their baby, working towards what now we call normal physiological childbirth or not? And I mean, putting aside that there is a percentage of women and babies who need all of the interventions or some of the interventions that we're so privileged to have in a country like Australia, where we have access to that sort of medical care when it's necessary, unlike many of our sisters in other countries who may need them but can't access them. So if there are health issues or something presents, yes, certainly, any and each of the interventions that are available, brilliant in their context where there's a medical need. But the birth culture is not premised really entirely around medical need. It's sort of premised around default ways of thinking that mean that there are many standardized and routine interventions that really play havoc with normal physiological childbirth. So if a woman has medical problems and care problems herself or the pregnancy is not a straightforward one, all right, she's well served. For a woman who feels that she doesn't really want to engage, that she wants the baby and she wants the baby born, but she doesn't have a sense that she wants to engage very much physically or emotionally or in other ways with the labor, then she's well served as well because, you know, we can get the baby born a whole lot of different ways without the mother's really having to engage particularly much in terms of a preparation for that. Medically, can be covered. But for women who I call, I've come to call willing women, 
women who really want to engage with their bodies, want to engage with the physiological process, want to engage with the deeper psychological process, want to engage with the hormones, the whole thing, and to come to that bonding with their babies. For those, for willing women, they have absolutely got to understand not only their bodies and that process, but what is happening in the birth culture and to do everything they can to make a choice that's a good philosophical match with their intentions. And that's harder to do than one might expect because the, certainly there's lots and lots of research that tells us what is best care for facilitating normal physiological childbirth, but there's very sort of small numbers of that aspect of care that are actually in the birth culture. For instance, just for one instance, across the world, the research tells us that for women, for normal physiological childbirth to unfold, women are best supported by known experienced caregivers who they have a relationship with across the pregnancy, across the labour and into the postnatal arena. It's called continuity of midwifery care. This is gold standard, gold standard for any birth experience actually, for the mother to be well tended to emotionally as well as medically and so on. But that gold standard of care in Australia, only 8% of women can access that form of care. And yet it is the, one of the biggest predictors about births going straightforwardly in that normal physiological way. So for women who are willing, who want to have a go at those times of birth, there's things they have to do to prepare for themselves in terms of how they are in their bodies and doing the work of working with the labour. But they really have got to be very savvy about the choices they make because if they're not savvy about that and don't know how that works, then that labour can be so easily sabotaged, which is another key point about my birth work and maybe we'll come to it, which is around the issue of pain. But there are some of the things that women now really need to be mindful of, to get clear about how they have some hopes and wishes for the birth and how it would go, to make sure they're finding those pockets that in alignment with their intentions, because they're a bit hard to find. And then there's the work to do to actually prepare for working with the labour itself. Yeah, you do speak a lot about working with the pain in childbirth. So how do we do that? And why is it so important? Can you talk us through that process? So I'm going to sort of go around it a little bit before I really get down to the how, because there's some information that relate to, as I'm saying, this cultural context. So in our present culture, probably not only about birth, but in particular, let's just talk about that. We seem to have a default sort of attitude about pain in childbirth, where we pity labouring women, we feel the poor, poor things, and we sort of demonise labour pain. So it's terrible, it's terrible, and you poor thing, you poor thing. And also I've heard a few times, oh, you shouldn't have to suffer. You shouldn't have to suffer and struggle, oh, you poor thing. So that's the cultural, social and cultural default, unless you're lucky enough to be in a small circle of family and friends or something that have got a different framework around it, but that's the default setting. And maybe I just might also draw back on my long history of doing this across, you know, 42 years now, which relates to this issue about pain. One of the things that I and some of us who are older like me and still working in birth, particularly working in normal physiological childbirth, have had the privilege of experiencing is having been working in birth before the epidural came into the picture. When did the epidural come in? What year was that? So they came in the sort of mid to late 80s. As I was saying before, it wasn't that other drugs weren't used to supposedly support the poor woman who's suffering in childbirth. But epidurals have entirely changed the whole process. The other drugs had an effect, but they didn't change physiology. 
whereas epidurals have changed birth out of sight. They affect the hormones, they affect the physiology and so on and so on. But also, they're incredibly seductive because they do offer what the culture says, which is your poor thing, you shouldn't have to suffer and you should be able to be pain-free and blah, 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 blah. And that's what the epidural promises. The seduction of the epidural, I talk about it as the Trojan horse in the birth space. We thought it was our friend, only to find actually that it hijacks everything about normal physiological childbirth. But having worked before they came in, of course, we saw so many normal, 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 normal births. And I still have the privilege of seeing normal, normal births. But now, of course, many practitioners, many midwives, many obstetricians have never seen a normal birth anymore because epidurals are so prevalent. So the epidural, the seduction of the epidural comes out of and amplifies that social cultural message about poor thing, no need to suffer. Here we can make you comfortable. You can be comfortable. Well, we talk about, you know, laboring. I don't think, you know, it was ever thought that women needed to be comfortable. Certainly there's a mindset to have to work towards and there's understanding about pain in labor, which I'm going to talk about in a moment. There's an understanding about it that really needs to be reframed so that women can embrace it and work with it. So if we just think about that, normal physiological childbirth involves the sort of functional physiological pain of your body working strong and hard, I think, towards a peak performance level. You know, and in Australia, probably... We really amplify and think that's a brilliant thing to do in all sorts of other arenas of life to work towards physical peak performance, you know, pounding the pavements and the gym and the swimming and the running and the bike riding and everything. We think it's brilliant and we laud it and we we know that it takes that functional physiological pain of muscle straining and breath straining and stretch receptors and all of that that's part of that experience of achievement of the body working well and hard. And yet when it comes to birth, we don't place birth into that context. We place birth, and this is really because it's placed in hospitals. And when we think about pain in hospital, we're thinking about pain that's coming out of damage, disease, illness, things going wrong. And that in that context, how brilliant to have pain-relieving drugs that can relieve the suffering of the pain of damage and enable the person to be more restful and to be healing from whatever that illness or that accident or why they're in hospital in the first place. But we've placed birth in hospital and because that's the sort of default mindset and practice and skill level around pain with caregivers in the hospital is about pain relieving and those drugs to relieve pain, then this plays entirely in that sort of cultural mindset about seeing women suffering and we you know, save them from that suffering. We've got these drugs that can do it. Like it's a hospitalized, medicalized mindset about a normal physiological process. And that happens because of that sort of connection between having births happen in hospitals and thinking about it in those terms and thinking about pain in those terms. Whereas if we were to really honor what's happening, which is much more akin to, you know, many of the people who go on fun runs, the people who try this and the people who try that, where they know that they're going to be working hard with their body and they need some stamina skills and some working with stretch receptors in yoga classes or, or whatever and put birth into that context. And if we gave birth in yoga studios or gyms, I think we'd have a whole different story going on because we'd have a different mindset about the energy and the purpose and what women are needing support for to work with their body or to, as some of the research says, to be working with pain. There's a beautiful bit of research about, in particular, say, midwives' attitudes towards pain in labor. And 
there's the midwives who, and this is a bit more of a nursing framework, and they're thinking more about pain relief in the medical context. And then there are midwives who consider themselves to be guardians of normal birth, and they have much more of a working with pain mindset, just like your personal trainer might, or your yoga teacher, or your birth doula, or your midwife who's attuned to this, or I don't know, your running companions, or your bike riding companions, people who understand, or your phys ed teacher, or your outdoor you know, adventure facilitator who understand that, yeah, some things are tough, but you can be supported to do that and can be supported through that and so on. So working with pain skills. And if we think about in birth, so the pain relieving side of that split, of course, that's where the epidural fits in, the seduction of the epidural. In terms of working with pain in labor, then, you know, we've got the shower, we've got the tub, We've got the breathing with, we've got the dancing, we've got the massage, we've got acupuncture, we've got intention, we've got people who can know how to, to work with us when we reach what I call, most women in a, in a labour are going to reach what I call a crisis of confidence where there's nothing going wrong, there's no, no medic, this is not a medical crisis, this is the crisis that you might reach somehow or other in, in your run in the morning when you've got to go up that hill or so in other other areas of life we might think about as hitting a pain barrier I talk about this in terms of a crisis of confidence where the mother is feeling that it's too much it's too long it's too strong it's too this it's too that and remember all women birthing in present culture even if they've chosen, you know, that sort of more protected and supportive space for birthing, nonetheless, they all know that an epidural exists. And so the seduction of that epidural is very undermining of our capacity to stay sometimes with the intensity of a labor, particularly if you haven't got really good experience support people around you. So that seduction, you know, even if your intention beforehand can be, well, no, yeah, I'm going to, I'm willing woman, I really want to have a go. Yes, I'm going to, and I'm doing this and doing that and doing the other. But in the midst of it, we can reach these points where it's like all those women, you know, the women was saying to me during the pregnancy, oh, don't be so stupid, the epidural, that's the thing to do. I think they were right. That's exactly what I need to do at the moment as I'm feeling this intensity. Unless you've got somebody who's really attuned to know, to understand how to work you through those crises of confidence, then even women who had thought before the labour that they were going to really work with it can be undermined at those points too. And particularly if they're working in standard care in hospitals where the midwife is unknown to them and the woman is unknown to the midwife, beautiful midwives, highly skilled, but remember many of them hold a pain relief mindset and set of skills and practices. So this stranger midwife working with this stranger birthing woman in a moment of crisis of confidence when the mother is feeling all the things that she thought she hoped and dreamed but they're crumbling a bit because it's more intense than she thought and then whispering in her ear is a midwife who, whose attitude is about seeing the poor thing she's in suffering. She shouldn't have to suffer. I, in my best duty of care to her, can save her from that suffering by offering this pain relief, that epidural in particular. And so the mother is undermined. I'm hoping I'm explaining this a way that women can understand in those hot moments where the labor is actually usually building beautifully, just ramping up as it's designed to, is in a way, with no you know, undermining intent, but out of the best care that that midwife with that attitude has, which feels like here is a woman who's really suffering and it's my best duty of care to, to save her, but that birth can be hijacked. Whereas if 
she's able to be working with midwives who those continuity of care midwives and pretty well all of the continuity of care midwives, and remember there's not that many of them in Australia, only 8% of women can access that care. Most of those midwives are highly skilled in working with pain. Doulas highly skilled at working with pain. So when the mother, seeing the same mother, firstly, if it's in a continuity of care setting, there's going to be a relationship. All of this stuff will be talked about before being in that hot moment and the midwife will know the mother's intentions, the midwife will know everything's going fine and will have those skills to come in just for that four or five contractions to get her through that crisis of confidence, then off she goes again. So that can really come to pass because there's a shared philosophy around this issue about pain. It's so, so important to understand this. I think it's also important for women to understand that, to take on board that they will, no matter what preparation they've done before, and there's preparation to do, but that they will reach a crisis of confidence and they will feel like, you know, get me the hell out of this, save me. The cultural mindset is so embedded, save me. And unless at that point, the people who are around them, what I call the facilitating holding circle, this is the people who the mother knows, and hopefully there's somebody experienced, one of those experienced midwives or maybe a doula, somebody in there who really knows how to hold that energy and support the mother through for that three, four or so contractions, not the whole of the labor, just but they're crucial moments because if they're not supported, then the default in our care settings comes into play. And maybe just to give some stats on that, of women who labor, and at present, our the elective Caesar rate is now 22%. So that means there's no labor. Yeah, so 22%. So then of the late women who do labor, whether it's their first baby, second, third, fifth, 78% of them are going to be using medical pain relief in their labor. And if it's a first labor, it's more 85% of those women who labor will be using medical pain relief. And a large proportion of that will be epidurals. So this is the default in the birth culture. It's the default in the social consciousness and attitude. So for willing women, and I guess that's you know the core of my work is working around normal physiological childbirth and in particular trying to talk to willing women. They need to understand the context and be absolutely savvy about their choices and in particular savvy about who's with them in that circle, who's got the capacity to hold that intensity when those crises of confidence comes forward. Maybe Melissa will go on to talk a little bit more about who might be in that circle because that gets, you know, there's a bit of dynamic in all that whole, whole story there too. Yeah, thank you. This is so helpful. I just wanted to chat about a few things. So I am having a home water birth I have two beautiful midwives that I just love and adore, and my husband will be here as well. And initially, I thought that I would always have a doula, and that's just something that I'd had in my mind. And then the more and more, I've done a lot of prep because I've been obsessed with birth and and pregnancy and labor for many, many years. I've read lots of books and interviewed incredible women like yourself and Sarah Buckley and Pam England and all of these incredible people have been on my show. And so I've been really interested in the birth preparation. And so the more I have read and shared with my husband, the more he has actually stepped up and said, I want to be that person for you, honey. Like I've got this. Like, and we just did Nadine Richardson's She Births course on the weekend. And he was like, babe, like, 
I've got this. I want to be that active participant and be that person for you and I can do it. And so I was like, okay. And so we've decided not to have a doula. He really wants to step into that role. He really feels like he can fulfill that role for me. And I've read lots in your books and many other books about this crisis of confidence, that point, you know, where you're, you're so close, you're, you're, the head is going to come out and the woman goes into that. I can't do this. I don't know how much longer. And I've shared with him and he's read that as well. And I said, there will be a point where I turn to you and I say, make this stop, or I don't know if I can do this anymore, or please save me. And I need you to stand really strong. And I need you to just hold space for me in that time and just say, baby, you got this. You're so close. And literally, I've written down a list of things for him to say, and he's going to have that list there. But I just wanted to share that with you because I think, you know, that whole old model of the husband or the partner just sitting on the sideline feeling helpless and feeling like they don't know what to do is a very outdated model. Like, you know, Nadine asked on the weekend, she said, where was your father's when you were being born? And my dad was at football. You know, my dad wasn't even there. And then I asked Nick, I said, where was your dad when you were born? He said, he was playing golf. And we were laughing about this because it's just not the way that it has to be anymore. And the husbands or the partners can be that active participant because they are the closest person to you. Like they are the love of your life, hopefully, and they know you better than anyone else. And they are your safety and your security and your beloved. And I was thinking, well, what better person to have as my number one rock in the room with me? And so that's why he really wants to step into that role. And he really wants, and I said, you know, honey, just for example, what if you're standing in the shower for four hours with me with the water on my back? Like one of my best friends, she just had a free birth and her husband was standing in the shower with her, shivering with the, with the hose on her lower back, shivering, shivering for hours. And I said, how would you feel if that was you? And he's like, I can do this. I've got this. And it's really empowered him. So I just wanted to share that with you because I think it's really empowering for us to empower our partners to step into that role if they feel confident and comfortable doing it. Can I speak to that a little bit? Absolutely. There's a few things to say around that I think. So yes, exactly as you found, you know, really fathers being at birth is not even fully one generation in. Wow. And your story paints the picture, yeah? So fathers being present at birth, not only one full generation in, still across the world, it's only in sort of westernized countries that that is the case. So the norm across the long span of human birthing is that fathers are not present at the birth. Where they have been present is really in protecting the birth space. So they're outside of the space, but protecting the birth space. So in more westernized cultures, fathers are coming into that birth space. And exactly as you talk about it, this is the ideal. And this is what we do see. I mean, looking at the research since fathers have been present at birth, firstly, even if your father had been present at your birth, I'm pretty sure your father wasn't in any way present in the way that you're imagining that Nick will be present with you. Yeah, That's not the model of that first generation of fathers who were present at birth. They were standing in the corner, they were gowned up, they were sent out of the room whenever anything happened, and so they were, many of them, traumatized, actually. So there's a big shift there. There's also that since fathers have been present at birth, 
there are sort of two streams of research, two branches, if you like. One of them is brilliant, 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 brilliant. And that is that since fathers have been present at birth, we're seeing much more of the nurturing father coming through as a social movement. The social connection of fathers, nurturing fathers to their babies, much more present to their babies, they're small toddlers, they're so on. Brilliant. But at the same time, since fathers have been present at birth, the intervention rates have been going through the roof. Now, this is a more complex, there are other issues about why that's the case, but one of them is because of this sort of confluence of women having their partner and relying on their partner, father of the baby. I mean, if their partner is another woman who has previously given birth, somebody who's experienced, maybe a different story. But if we're talking about fathers of babies, women having as their anchor in the labor, their partner who is inexperienced at the bodily process, who is inexperienced in terms of being in the absolutely rarefied atmosphere of the hormones when they're pumping, and is inexperienced as a generational line of having, you know, solid stories from father to son to father to son in terms of positive ways about being at birth to facilitate that that beautiful natural unfolding. So there's not a generational line. And also there's not a sort of education about them how to be in that heightened intensity that the mother is exhibiting in terms of the functional physiological pain. And as well, fathers are part of the culture at the moment, and the culture is saying, the poor thing, she's suffering, and she needs to be saved. And if he can't save her, well, then who can? Well, of course, the epidural can. The epidural can save everybody. The epidural can save the partner from being distressed, witnessing his, his, the woman working with the labor if he hasn't been educated or understood that what she's doing is such powerful, you know, strong work rather than suffering and doesn't know how to support that. And in fact, there's now research coming through from a number of countries that in fact, fathers are much more satisfied with the birth when the mother is on an epidural because it takes all of that distress, that feeling of their, the partner's powerlessness. It also takes, well, I mean, the, the cultural message is anyway that she's suffering. And if she's bought into that and if they've all bought into that and that that's the medicalized situation they're in, then it relieves a lot of that helplessness and they can just be watching telly together or something whilst that process is happening. So there are some concerning things about fathers being present at birth that relate to this bigger picture about the loss of capacity for normal physiological childbirth. Maybe let me just say one other thing about that. So you're in your birth choices, you're a, what I call a willing woman, willing woman. You want to have a go and you're making really what the research would say is brilliant choices to support your birthing capacity and for that normal physiological childbirth to unfold. And your partner, of course, going to be in that space, in your own space, your home, and so that feeling of comfort, but also your partner will be supported both emotionally and psychologically and information-wise by the midwives who are there, who he's getting to know as well, and you're all on the same page. And if at any point in the labor things are getting a bit, not medically, nothing medically happening, but in terms of this intensity that I'm talking about, a crisis of confidence, and the partner might be, you know, oh, wow, you know, pretty full on, but looks over and sees the midwife sitting in the corner having a big smile on their face and having a cup of tea, well, then that's very grounding to the partners about, oh, well, okay, it looks a bit freaky, but it must be okay, so let's keep going. So in a way, the choices you're making are supporting him to be present in a way that, that makes that beautiful connection between the two of you possible. Whereas if 
women are birthing in spaces where that's not the case and the partner is the one supposedly holding that ground, but they themselves are freaking out because it's so intense and they don't quite know how to hold it and everybody else seems to be anxious about it, the medicos or what have you, or suggesting epidurals to the woman, then this is a very different story, as I'm sure you can imagine. So another thing that I say in my second book, one of the things, if we think back to this aspect about it, basically women have birthed with other women for eons. This is our mammalian pathway. More recently, we're changing this, and there's brilliant things that are coming out of that, but also, as I'm saying, in terms of research, some more worrying things. But I think about it in terms of the archetypes. And if we're thinking about archetypes, these are sort of like the deepest layers in the psychology about particular elements and energies that represent different characters or people in various life dramas. Birth, certainly a life drama. And because forever in our birth mammalian culture, women have been supported by other women, the archetypes of birth, as I understand them and talk about them in the book, are female. But what we've done over, well, as I'm saying, particularly over a generation, which is sort of a generation and a half, close to two generations now, but not exclusively, we've displaced the womanly care. I know that mostly midwives are, are females, but remember, most of them are strangers to women and they're working in a very medicalized context. They're not really with the woman. They're not able, and many of them are heartbroken, and they're not really able to be so emotionally engaged and with the woman. So the father steps in to this space. And with everybody else being a stranger and coming and going, the father is the constant. And so what I, I mean, I do far too much birth debriefing. And what I've seen over the years, over and over and over again, particularly on that side of the birth debriefing, is that women are expecting from their partners in what I, in my terms, would say that he can carry all of these female archetypes in that birth space, that he can be like the midwife who knows exactly what's going on and how to be, that he can be like your mother to know exactly how to nurture you in a space like that. He can be the birthing goddess who can hold that energy. He can be like, like a sister. And because these are the sort of deepest expectations that women have in that labor, in this archetypal realm, because of our prehistory of always being around women. And so men are stepping in bravely into that space with great love and care, but not quite understanding all of the rarefied energies that are part of it. And also for many women, not understanding. It's that thing, I guess, of a lot of women can feel like, well, my partner should just know what to do automatically. Well, that's really an expectation of a woman, what a woman would be able to offer and so on. So in the book, I talk about it. So there are archetypes that men, in a situation like you're choosing, where your partner is going to be as well supported as you, what we can see then is the brilliant archetypes of the lover come forward in the in the partner. And of course, now that we know so much more about the hormones, well, if that's if that lover energy can be there in the birth, well, then that really juices up the hormones for that, that birth to go well. And also the protector. But the protector is about protecting the birth space, not protecting the mother from the hard work of the birth journey. Yeah. Whereas what I think we see, we do see men being called into that protector role, but they're taking it on as trying to protect her from the work of it. And therefore, the epidural and so on steps into to that space. Um, I talk about this a lot and explain it in, in more detail in different ways, but I'm hoping I'm getting the essence of, of how that can be. So brilliant that you're making those choices where 
the two of you can really step into that beautiful space of engagement with one another. And then the other beautiful, beautiful role or archetype for a father is what I've seen so often in births where women are well supported by experienced other women is the calling in of the baby. It's like that spiritual place of being in that clear space. Because the mother sometimes is, she's calling in her baby, but she's also dealing with the opening of her body to let the baby come through, whereas the father is often the one who's clearly in that spiritual role of calling that baby. So beautiful roles for fathers when they're so beautifully supported in making those wise choices. But if women are feeling like they just want that romantic thing between them and their partner and they're in making choices that are sort of hostile to what their hopes and dreams for the birth is anyway, doesn't necessarily end well. So well done for your choices. Oh, thank you. I'm just popping in to tell you about one of my favorite products that I love and use every single day. And that is my blue light blocking glasses by Blue Blocks. Nick and I love them so much that we collaborated with them to create the Nick and Melissa range, which are stunning and my absolute favorites. We honestly wear these every single day and night and take them with us when we travel and even when we go to friends' places for dinner. And if you've heard my episodes with Andy Mant and Jack Cruz on the harmful effects of blue light, you will know how detrimental blue light is for our health, hormones, eyes, and sleep, which is why I personally use them every single day. But they don't just do blue light blocking glasses. They also have awesome yellow and red light bulbs that you can install in your home, which have zero flicker, low EMF, and zero blue light. As you guys know, I'm currently pregnant, and I recently learned that if I wake up in the night to feed my baby and turn on the blue lights, this will affect my milk production, the quality of my milk, and the supply. So this is yet another reason why we need to get rid of all of the blue light in our home. Another one of my favorite products is their sleep mask, which blocks out all, and I mean all of the light, not like those cheap eye masks that you can get. I wear this every single night and I love it. And you can get any of their Epic products 15% off with the code MELISSA. Just head to blueblocks.com forward slash Melissa. That's B-L-U-B-L-O-X dot com forward slash Melissa and enter the code Melissa at the checkout and come and tell me on Instagram what you think of their products. Now let's get back to the conversation. What other prep would you really encourage or inspire women to do? I think certainly to have some, you know, our, our breathing, we breathe, we breathe, we breathe. But to work strongly with our body to do various things, whatever it is that we might choose to do or be called upon to do, often there are times where we modify our breath to give us more power or to calm us more or to have endurance or a whole lot of ways and means that we might modify our breath. So for women to have experience of somewhere in their life that they have modified their breath in order to achieve, to work with their body in some way. There are many that are presented, you know, you can do all sorts of different breathing things that are specific to birth. I, the phys ed teacher in me feels like, I don't know whether it, maybe if you've never done anything with your breath before in your life, maybe that could be useful. I just think you need to be attuned to some sort of breathing modification and breathing rhythm that you have done somewhere along your life and bring that into play 
as a sort of a practice, if you like, through the pregnancy, particularly late pregnancy, to, I don't know, whether it's when you go walking or what have you, but really somewhere or other to have some breathing skills and whatever that is, your partner needs to know it or certainly, I mean, if you've got experienced midwives or doulas with you, then it's like our bread and butter is, is the thing about if women are starting to go into panic breathing or something, how to bring them down and how to slow their breathing down and so on. So somebody who can help to modify, and that might be your partner if he knows what it is that you're doing with your breath, so that's good. Or he has his own practice of breath that he can you know, offer to you for a contraction or two if you're really losing your, your way. So that's important. And in particular, that's important. Like uh, I'll put it in a timing of the labor in a moment. So that also some form of relaxation technique. It can be something that you've done before in your life. It can be something that you're learning new in the pregnancy, but somewhere doing that and have it linked to some particular music or sounds. Sounds of waves, sound of birds, sound of wind, sound of, or some particular music, you know, whether that's mantra, some relaxation specific music, or it's some classical music that you love, or whatever. But that in particular, in the last part of the pregnancy, those la- that last trimester, those last few weeks, to specifically put together your relaxation and that music to become habituated to it. So this might be two or three times a week. And if you're habituated to it, your baby is also habituated to it. So that in the labor, particularly if you're coming to one of these crises of confidence, which I'm, you know, predict that this is what happens, when that music's put on, it's like there's a automatic habituation to softening and surrendering to it and releasing and relaxing. And of course, it can be used as a beautiful tool after the baby's born. If the baby is distressed, as it will be at times, then a Music, again, can be played and that can be part of the soothing of the baby as well. So that's, that's another thing. So some breathing modification preparation, either from something you've done before in your life and then bring it forward again into, for this and some relaxation, again, something you've done before and you bring, you're smartening it up for this or learning some of the more specific ones. So they're very important and they're very important for parenting as well. So that's good. I think also, just to say, you know, in the early days of home births, we were so embedded, what was so embedded was this idea of lying down. So we were lying on our own beds, but we were still lying down. So that sort of acculturation, we need to be mindful of that as well. So I think that to do, we're now in an era, of course, where we're seeing so many beautiful birth videos now, and particularly seeing, you know, the videos of women who are really working with normal physiological childbirth and quite spontaneously, and we see that they move. We see that they're upright. We see that they're leaning forward. We see that they're being physiological with their body as opposed to this enculturated lying down. But of course, if you watch some of the birth programs, particularly if women are in hospitals, they're still lying down. This is not what the body needs or how the body would work in birth. This is an overlay of generations of acculturation. And of course, it works much better for your medical caregivers to have access to you to do this and that and the other, but it's not really what a birthing body would do. So for women who know that they come from a more acculturated mindset about birth, then watching some videos and ideally, I mean, you probably know some of the channels more than I do, but I'm pretty sure that you could find somewhere where you're really seeing normal physiological childbirth unfolding. And be careful of not watching things like one born every minute or what have you, where you're really, again, getting reinforced in the acculturation about a hospital medicalized birthing. 
So that's good to open that mindset as well as what I, he's the phys ed teacher in me again, <laughs> talking about that in the birth space. So for, for home birth, this is very easy to achieve. If women are going into hospital, of course, they're still going to be doing some laboring at home. I mean, ideally, they're not going into hospital until they're around seven centimeters would be ideal. So they're doing some laboring at home. So I talk about a birth circuit. You know, a lot of us work with exercise circuits. We do a bit on here and a bit there and a bit there. It's a way of extending stamina and working in different ways and with different tensions in our body. So a birth circuit is like laying out that space so the mother can shift and move around as she needs according to the pressures in her body and not that she's dictated by that bed in the middle of the room that says, get up on here and we're going to do things to you. So getting your head around that, what that could be look like, maybe even a bit of a dress rehearsal at home about trying, is it two cushions on the couch when I kneel and lean in or is it one or is it, if I need to pace up and down the passageway, do we need to move that bit of furniture or what have you, all of those things. For women going into hospital, ideally they've been into the hospital and they know what that room looks like and how they need to rearrange it to be a working space for the labour, not a medicalised space for a very medicalised birth. I mean, generally, if you go into those hospitals room, the bed's in the middle and it's saying, you know, get up here, push that bed out of the way and say, no, I'm tracking this labour and I'm working and dancing my way through this, this labour. So that's a mindset, but also a physical preparation in terms of the positions. I think pregnancy yoga is very helpful for moving into the sort of positions and stretching your body in the ways that the body needs to be open for the labour. So that's a, as well pregnancy yoga generally has that aspect about tuning to the baby as well and to relaxation and breathing. So I think that's probably an ideal preparation. So there are some of the things. And to also know that, you know, we've, that that crisis of confidence, and maybe just let me say one other thing about that in terms of what you were saying, about the timeline of a birth, yeah? And the timeline, it's often drawn like flat. Well, it's not. It's, it's going up. It's up, it's up, it's up, it's up, intensifying. So the early part of labor, so pre and early labor, so this is getting through to that six centimeters, pre and early labor. Mostly, ideally, women will be doing that at home, even if they're intending to go to hospital. Those of you having home births, of course, probably during that time. That's often a time of needing companionship, not necessarily birth support. You know, just somebody hanging out with you and cooking up a storm or finishing that blanket that you're knitting or so, I don't know, what are, you know or going for a walk on the beach, or just having somebody around might be a partner. So companionship, then when you're getting into the deeper stuff, well, then that's when you're wanting that juice of somebody who really knows what they're doing and that intensity of the labor. So that early part is where generally having some practiced breathing skills, some practiced relaxation skills, some practiced and habituated sort of positional work that you might go here and there, that's when that all comes into play because women at that point are still in their cerebral cortex, still in our 21st century thinking brain. And so having those skills through that point helpful because that's the bridge into hopefully when they drop more in around that six, seven centimeters and the brain waves are making their shifts and changes because of the hormones. Got to say something about that in a moment. Those brain waves are shifting. Then as those brain waves shift and the hormones are shifting and changing, then women drop much more into, they go through what I call an evolutionary regression, where then they drop into that primal brain. And at that point, then the body takes over. 
and the breathing takes over and the thinking and feel. Yeah, all of that is gone. The thinking, feeling and fears, all of those things are gone. But to get to that point, that dropping down into that primal evolutionary regression, this is often a time where women freak out. They feel like they're losing control. And that's a big crisis of confidence that come around that seven centimeters. But it's, for those of us who know this, or when I hear do birthday briefing and find, you know, the point at which the epidural came in was around that seven centimeters. And I just weep. Well, I don't quite weep, but I could weep because it's like this is, she's just on that cusp when her entire mammalian heritage is coming to offer her the support of her generations to drop deeper and to really move into that instinctive place. But instead, we bring the epidural in because, because there's a misguided thing about that I've got to stay in control of myself got to use that breathing to be in control of myself or to be in no 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 yes to get you through the early time but then to trust this shift and change which then takes you into that primal space so that idea of crisis of confidence can come earlier what i think you were talking about was in late first stage that sort of real transition there's a confusion women are they're starting to come out of that deep primal brain because there's an adrenaline surge that comes at that point to wake them up. Because before this point, when, when the endorphins are so strongly in there, they're really totally in between contractions. They're sort of drifting. They're like on the nod. This, all, all of these endorphins takes out that thinking brain. Brilliant. But then another shuttle of adrenaline comes through. And that can sometimes bring a little bit of fear and a little bit of sort of that sort of distress that you're saying, oh, I can't, you know, at this point I can't do it. That can be a, an expression around transition, which lets anybody who's experienced know, well, oh, brilliant, you know, how brilliant. And then moving into second stage, you know, bearing down, the baby comes down through the vagina and so on. Of course, as you're saying, there can be also that ooh, hot moment of those stre- that real stretch as the baby's emerging, but being reminded and partners can do a beautiful, beautiful at that point to say, it's, you know, the baby's here, it's curly hair, it's this, it's that, it's the other. So that can be also beautiful. But those crises of confidence can happen much earlier in the labor and they can hijack that whole intention if women don't understand and have good people around them. And maybe just one other thing, just in that talking about those things, it's the idea of the brain waves, yeah? This is the evolutionary regression. So, you know, a lot of people pounding the pavement or going to the gym or whatever, you they use that mantra, pain is my friend, pain is my friend, pain is my friend, yeah, step by step. So my understanding is really it's never been so true, that mantra, as it is in birth. Never been so true that this functional physiological pain of the strong and building contractions, which are escalating, they're intensifying, they're getting closer together, they're getting longer, they're building, building, building. It's an escalating intensity. That that building intensity that we can feel as functional physiological pain, remember nothing going wrong, everything going brilliantly, just escalating, which we mightn't like so much, escalating. But when they reach a particular intensity, and this is around the hormones, this is around that seven centimeters, what happens then is that they kick over the endorphins. So it's like, you know, having that runner's, you know, hitting a pain barrier and people do it, whether it's running or bike riding or a whole lot of other things. And they know when they hit those pain barriers that if they are supported to go through them, what they get is that whole runner's high or that bike rider's high or that yoga high or what have you. They do it because they want that high because that's the uplift. 
So in labor, this happens too. This happens when women, it happens around that seven centimeters, as I say, that those endorphins come through, which give that uplift. But not only that, as I'm saying, what they do is the endorphins swamp the cerebral cortex, take that thinking, worrying brain out, drop the mother down into that evolutionary regression. And then that labor is just, she's that primal woman. Could be centuries ago, could be in 2020, could be at any time along that spectrum of, of human birthing capacity. That's who, who comes forward at that point. And we don't see her so often, sadly. We don't see her so often. I've been very privileged across my career to see her over and over and over again. And, you know, I feel in the choices that you're making, you're hoping to meet her and for her to be there and to be expressed and for your partner to witness her and to celebrate her and not feel like he's got any need to save you from embodying her and doing that primal work of birthing that baby. So there's a few thoughts around the questions you're asking me. Beautiful. So powerful. So empowering. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. Let's pretend now that you have a magic wand and you could put one book in the school curriculum of every single high school around the world. Now, besides your books, they should definitely be there. (laughs) What is one other book you would choose? And it doesn't have to necessarily be related to birth or anything. Just coming off my writing that second book, I've been so immersed. It's about the only books I can think of are those books. I think that maybe just a little background. You know, I was saying before, we had that little bit of a conversation about active birth. So Janet Belaskis, a yoga teacher in England, wrote the book Active Birth in the, came in in the 80s. And it was one of those books that just dropped in and started to change consciousness. She, she was the first, as I said, before that, we were all lying on our back still, even at home. She started to bring that idea of yoga and the ancient thing about women being much more upright. And it spread around the world. It's just called Active Birth. And so we thought it was done. You know, we thought that book did it and we were getting up and moving around. But of course, the epidural came in. And little did we know that we were going to be willingly lying flat on our backs and not only that, but having that whole birth taken away. So I think active, Janet Blasker's book, Active Birth, has been reprinted many, many times. That would be a great one. It's a, maybe she might have to, they might have to put a few more modern photos in. It's probably a little bit, the leotards perhaps give, give the 80s away. Maybe a little bit of revamp, but it's, it was a powerful, powerful book. and maybe. There's a few about babies as well. You know, the baby is an, is an autonomous being in its birth. So some of those things. I love it. We'll link to it in the show notes as well as your incredible books. I have three rapid fire questions for you now. Are you ready? What is one of the most important things that we can do today for our health? Relaxation. What is one of the most important things that we can do for our wealth? So more abundance in all areas of our life. I mean, it's been my privilege to, because of finding this work or this work finding me, to be working really with a passion about something that I feel is important, not only for me, but in a wider context. So I think, think, feel that if people, and I mean, I know it's sort of cliched, you know, to find your passion, but to find 
it's not only that I have a passion, but, you know, as a teacher before, so it brings a number. I have a teacher, I'm, I'm embodied, I'm talking about something that's an embodied process, I'm passionate about it, I'm interested in socially what's going So I can bring together a whole lot of myself following that particular passion. So I think that people who have the capacity to either have their passion early and then to be educate, you know, gather their education around that or their passion comes somewhere or other and their education and the things that they've done to the, in their life to that point just serve that, that whole pathway. And then in a way, in terms of abundance, in terms of well-being, and that's abundance in terms of feeling a sense of doing something positive in the world and so on. And sometimes the money follows and so there's an abundance in, in that aspect of well-being as, as well. And I guess, you know, I'm older, I'm in my 70s now, so coming not hopefully to exactly the end of my life, but coming into that phase of life that's often called where we're looking at generativity, you know, what, what are we giving back? So I feel privileged to have that this work found me or that the birth of my daughter found me and it's met with a whole lot of my own wishes and wants and feelings and capacities to, to bring it forward. So that's a bit of a long-winded answer to your quick-fire question about that. That's beautiful. And the final one is, what is one of the most important things that we can do for more love in our life? Uh-huh. So the short answer is to drop our defences, to in a way soften what we have gathered to, to try and protect us from closeness with another or with others. There's a longer story behind that, of course, when we understand some of the stuff that I talk about in the second book around our attachment style and how we were responded to as small babies and we were responded to in ways in those early years to feel like we trust and that we trust ourselves and we trust others and so we don't have so much of that defendedness or that feeling of needing to protect ourselves or to have some shield up or what have you. So dismantling, if we haven't in our adult lives, come to some reckoning with with those aspects that we carry from our earlier life story then doing some of that so that we can soften that to be open to I mean love is there love is love and lovingness and willingness is there and I can't I must say of course oxytocin yeah birth those birth scenes that normal physiological childbirth oxytocin is pumping in that room it's not only in the mum and in the baby and the partners we are all falling in love because we're all caught in that oxytocin is being excreted, we're smelling it, we're feeling it, we're changed by it. So more babies being born in that sort of oxytocin haze so that their early lives are attended to with parents who biologically, physiologically attuned because of the hormones that have been part of our mammalian history to be present are going to be much more open and available for love in their lives because we will be sort of instinctively attuned to how to do that in their early time, not having to learn it, but really it's there in essence because of the, the, yeah, the hormonal priming. And as an aside to that, this is the great tragedy for those of us who are working in birth. We see that the hormonal story of birth is so interfered with in our present birth culture that this is not happening readily and what is this meaning going forward if we think about this idea of opening to love so beautifully said this has been so amazing you have shared so openly and honestly and everything has just been jaw-dropping you know it's amazing this information 
Is there anything else that you want to share? Any last parting words of wisdom or anything that you wanted to talk about that I didn't ask you? So I think I've tapped it a little bit just there in that last answer. And I mean, I'm just framing it really because I've put that effort into those two books. But in the first book, I talk much more around the issues that we've talked about in terms of pain and crisis of confidence and who's with you and so on, so on. And I think that for women, willing women who want to have a go at normal physiological childbirth, that is absolutely key. They've got to get their head around that because the birth culture does not support normal physiological childbirth. To my reckoning, it's about 1% to 5% of women have normal physiological childbirth. 1% to 5%. So a lot of good choices, as I've said, that have to be made about that. So that's the first book. And if you don't get that, don't understand that, then that birth is going to be hijacked. Because the challenge of normal physiological childbirth and the functional physiological pain, it's outside of the realm of most women's lived experience. The second book which is the one I always wanted to, you know, it was really the depth of the beautiful stories that I've been witness to is much more than, okay, well, so the mother is making her best choices, understanding the stuff about pain dynamics. And then who is the mother meeting this rite of passage? Who is the mother meeting this birth fire? And that takes us back to our own birth and our own childhood and our own early time as we come through to also the the woman, the mother we want to be. And so that psychological work is another part of preparing for the birth process itself. But certainly, you know, where we talk about that we have epidemics of postnatal depression and post-traumatic stress coming out of what's happening in birth, which I've already mentioned, but postnatal depression... And again, partly this comes not only to my understanding, but we can get the baby born. We can have the epidural. We can then be on a drip. We can then have the forceps or we can have the Caesar or, you know, this is the default settings. And we can get the baby born. And then we place the baby in the arms of that mother. But has that mother being tempered through the pregnancy, through the birth, through the birthing process into her strength and her trust in herself and her trust in her capacity as a, as a woman to hold a baby and to know and be present to a baby? Or has the fact that we can get the baby born through these interventions robbed her of the experience of sometimes working through some of her own woundedness from childhood or her attachment wounds or stuff in the psychological realm that would support the strengthening of her into being that mother. And I think what we're seeing in these high degrees of postnatal depression is that that work is not being done, not being done during pregnancy. Babies are born because we can do that, but placed in the arms of women who are floundering in a way and they're still without coming through some strengthening process. So that's, I'm talking lots about that in that second book, out of that feeling that many women are coming through wounded and or that there's a possibility of being strengthened into motherhood when they're well supported for that normal physiological childbirth rather than in a way either damaged or weakened. And then we have to deal with it once the baby's here and much harder to be dealing with it once then that baby's here. So whether or not through reading my books, but really understanding that for women, there are places and spaces where there are caregivers who are well aware of this work and who are there and would love to be supporting women. So 
encouraging that. And there are many midwives in in the hospital systems who would dearly love to work with women in these ways, but there's structural issues that are you know, making that more difficult and so on. But yes, to be mindful of, well, who am I stepping into motherhood? And that's a journey in itself, as well as what is it, how I want this birth to be? And am I making the savvy choices that really back my intentions? <laughs> Your books are essential reading for anyone who is embarking on this pregnancy and birth journey and read them now. Wherever you're at in your journey, read them now because they are so great. So thank you for writing them. You're helping so many women. You are such a trailblazer. Thank you for all the work you do. You serve so many women. And I want to know what I personally and the listeners can do to serve you. How can we give back to you? Because you give so much to so many other women. Thank you. What a beautiful thought. I mean, step up into it, you know, that would be one thing, to sit, to become savvy. Uh, I wish it weren't the case, but you have absolutely got to be savvy about what that birth culture is at present. And if you get enraged about that, then there's certainly organisations who are trying to do work to, to change structures and to support. So giving back in those ways could, could be good. And honouring something about birth Honouring the rite of passage of birth would also be giving back to, to me to not just think it's like it's another medical thing that can be done to me, but there's a deep, deep process. That would be beautiful to understand that. You know, I have grandchildren, I have grandchildren. I'd love to have the friends and peers of all my grandchildren going forward, the children who have been, who know how to love, who come through birth process, early mothering, early parenting times with uh, nurture and care so that they, they can move forward all together. That would be another thing, way to give back to me. Yeah. Definitely. This has been so beautiful and powerful and so important. So thank you so much for sharing everything, for all the work that you do, for your books, everything. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so much. Good. Thank you, Melissa. Beautiful to be with you. What an important conversation that was. So many nuggets of wisdom and such an important conversation that needs to be had and shared. And I hope you got a lot out of it. And if you did, please subscribe and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts because that means that we can inspire and educate even more people together. And it also means that you could be the review of the week for next week, which is pretty awesome. And speaking of review of the week, I want to read this week's review, and it is from Amy. It's a five-star review titled, My Longtime Go-To Podcast. And Amy says, I've been an avid receiver of Melissa's podcast since the beginning, so I'm as surprised as anyone that I haven't reviewed it until now. I give this show a consistent five stars for its quality, diversity, conciseness, and entertainment. No other podcast teaches and engages me like this one. You're the bomb and I'm thankful to have found you so long ago. Love, Amy. Amy, thank you so much for that beautiful review. I am so touched and so grateful. That is so kind of you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And as a little thank you, I want to give you one of my top four favorite products. And this week you get some goodies from Blue Blocks, which is the blue light blocking glasses from the Melissa range, which I absolutely love. So 
send me an email to hello at melissarambrosini.com with your address and I will post those to you. How cool is that? So don't forget, if you want to get some goodies and be the review of the week for next week, head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave your review right now. And don't forget to come and follow me on Instagram at Melissa Ambrosini and tell me your top key takeaways from this episode. I absolutely love reading them all. So please continue to come and share them with me. And for everything that we mentioned in today's show, you can check out in the show notes. That's over at melissarambrosini.com forward slash 392. And before I go, I just wanted to say thank you so much for being here, for wanting to be the best, the healthiest and the happiest version of yourself and for showing up today for you. You rock. Now, if there's someone in your life that you can think of that would really benefit from this episode, please share it with them right now. Actually, please share it with all the women in your life. It is so important and we need to get this message out there. So you can take a screenshot, share it on your social media, email it to them, text it to them, do whatever you've got to do to get this in their ears. And until next time, my darling, Don't forget that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word.